0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So, you know, I've been uh, on retreat at Common Ground's retreat center near Prairie Farm, Wisconsin these last three weeks. It's been really nice to be out there, hopefully some of you I know have been out there for practice and. If you haven't, hopefully it will make sense someday. It's really a a beautiful space that the community uh, for these last eight years has has been developing. corey has been our construction manager all those years. And uh, it's really uh, becoming a practice gem. So uh, in the weekly emails, we're always uh, announcing time to get out there to do practice. And it's not a big retreat center, just nine bedrooms or so. And so it's more family style, which is kind of a, a newer way of us practicing here in the West. And what is practice? You know, it's one of those words we use so much at the center. It can kind of drive us a little crazy. People always say, oh, practice this, practice that. And what do we mean by practice? And that's what I was sort of pointing to at the beginning, because... You know, we have this, most of us, some more than others, this deep sense of locating the problem and then dominating it, controlling it, getting rid of it, managing it, or ignoring it, wishing it would go away, pretending it isn't there, or blaming somebody for it being there. But it's a conflictual relationship. It's, oh, it's in one way or another we're justifying, rationalizing, being in conflict with reality, and it sort of really goes to the core of our habit energy. Of, um, we don't, we can't really think, we can't really make up meaning, which of course we're swimming in. Meaning the meaning that the mind constructs all the time. And we can't really do that without this splitting the moment into opposites, this and that, here and home, good and bad, me and you. And it kind of sets up this basic attitude, basic approach, which is... You know, I'm I'm here. I know I'm knowing this, which is there, here and there, and I like it or I don't like it. So it's really um, going to happen. We have to just be prepared that no matter how good the instructions are, meditation instructions are, we're basically destined to turn our spiritual practices and our meditation practice into some version of trying to fix or dominate or ignore. Basically do the same thing we've been doing and getting the same frustrating results. So if you've been getting frustrating results in your spiritual practices or meditation, we're destined for that to happen. That's part of the learning process. Is like realizing how Meditation, spiritual practice doesn't fix it. Because we're we're always going to begin our spiritual practices doing the same basic some version of the same thing we've been doing out in life. You know how it is and we have a relationship, it's not working, we imagine it's this particular relationship, and then we look for another relationship, and lo and behold, it doesn't work either. And even the ones that do work don't work, if you know what I mean, right? Even good experience doesn't resolve our existential uneasiness and heaviness, have you noticed? Like for those of us who maybe are in a period where life is working pretty well for us, doesn't resolve the basic issues in life. And all of this, I think, goes to this point, you know, it's so obvious, but to whatever degree we have a sense that in the great catastrophe, messiness of life, that, you know, we intuit, we sense that happiness, the release of the harm, love is possible in, you know, with the world, my mind, the way that it is. Not like when we become perfect, right? So we, the spiritual intuition is we're not seeing the whole picture and, you know, we're struggling, there's a lot of suffering and there's some intuition, we're not seeing the whole picture and the suffering doesn't have to be have to be the way it is for me, for anyone. It doesn't mean we know the answer. I mean, if we knew the answer, we'd know the answer. (laughs) But we're curious. And that's actually really important that even if it's just a little thin sliver of intuition, that peace is possible, the release, the sense of being bound up, is extra, it doesn't have to be there. There's the possibility of that release. It's surprising how powerful that insight is, like, you know, in the way that I instructed the sit of just sort of inviting us to be exposed to our lives, what's the feeling that's here to be felt? How's the mind, the wild mind, the sleepy mind or whatever, and just sort of giving permission for our lives, the activity of the body and the mind to be the way it is. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes, you know, we notice all the unfinished, unresolved stuff in the heart, in the body, in the mind. And the thing about like when we do sense how bound up, how much in a grip my mind and my heart is in, even that can be conducive for faith. Because to the degree we really see that I'm all tied up in a knot, I'm all bound up. Right in that rec- that more honest recognition, I'm really angry. I'm really mad at myself. I really don't like myself, I really don't like my life, I really think the world is screwed up." Right in that felt sense that to the degree we have an honest and relatively clear sense of being bound up, right with that is the sense that the being bound up is extra. we can imagine not being bound up to the degree we know that we're bound up we can imagine not being bound up. It's kind of uh, it really goes to the art I think of the practice you know is to develop enough integrity enough stability of present moment awareness to basically open to the natural, unavoidable karmic effects of having lived the way we've lived, thought the way we've thought these past years and maybe lifetimes, right? And then we get a mind or heart that's like this. So we've created enough, we've trained the mind to be willing just to be open, to be present. And we feel the karmic effect of living in this world being pushed and pulled by this world, our relationships, this mind conditioned, I often sort of jokingly say, but it's so true, this mind conditioned by late 1950s and 1960s television and values, you know, my parents having grown up in the 20s and 30s conditioned their way, transmitting their conditioning to me, as well as the culture, and then you get a mind like this, conditioned like this, seeing the world, perceiving the world like this, in terms of gender, in terms of race, in terms of class, in terms of what's good and what's bad. right? And each of us have our own particular version of that. However, our heart and mind was conditioned by culture and genetics. And so there's this uh, this sense of, I don't know if you know John Kabat-Zinn, but uh, he's sort of a seminal figure in Buddhism coming to the West because he started, he's a scientist, and he started Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction at the University of Massachusetts way back, several decades now, maybe even 30 years ago, or 35 years ago when it first started. Now it's Everywhere, including at Common Ground. But it's just a more secularized version of using mindfulness practices from Buddhism to help people manage the stress of life. But the reason I bring it up is the book that first sort of described his eight week course that I don't know, probably millions of people have done by now um, is called Full Catastrophe. Living or Healing? I forget. Anybody remember? Living? Yeah, Full Catastrophe Living. Which, I mean, as brilliant as the eight-week program is, the title of that book is really important. And it's especially interesting for somebody who really wanted to create something for the popular culture and acceptable in medical settings and more professional settings to kind of you know mindfulness based stress reduction is pretty acceptable but the seminal book on the on the program Full Catastrophe Living just to kind of put it out there that when we sit, when we lie down, when we stand, when we walk and open to our life are actually curious, it is a full catastrophe. That's not a mistake. It's like like Oh, well, you took the wrong turn, so it's a catastrophe for you. But for the rest of us, smooth sailing, <laughs> you know, rosy colors, nice and even. We don't have to. I was, you know, being at the retreat center these last three weeks, and it's, it's really. Uh, serene place, really nicely done, really simple but, but has a kind of uh, beauty to it. Uh, the retreat building itself and the grounds, the, the land around the building is, is quite beautiful and simple. And, uh, but you know, we don't have to, you know, the, the full catastrophe, it's always there. Even in, even if we're like we've got a perfect house, <laughs> and uh, been really thoughtful about each possession we put in the house or apartment, and even been very thoughtful about how we raised our children and the partner we chose. You know, it's sort of like curated our life so it's just right. And it's different, you know, for the more hippies types in the room. You know, it's going to have a different look than the kind of more this type or the more that type or right. But it's like get it all right, get it all right. But even when we get it all right and we can't think of any other way, anything else we'd want, kinda of, it's still a full catastrophe. And that's sort of getting to this kind of ground zero where we have an honest, wise relationship with life. And, and it can take some time to get there because it's, uh, it's, it's one of the reasons, I don't know how many people have seen the first uh, Matrix movie. I normally don't bring it up just because it's... But, but that scene when uh, Nemo, or whatever his name was, <laughs> Nero. But anyway, the main character, when he realizes that he's been living in a dream, the Matrix, and uh, he's asked, "Do you really want to see the way things are?" You know, and when he he sort of agrees, he goes down that rabbit hole, and he wakes up, and well, I'm not going to give anything away, but it wasn't what he thought, <laughs> 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 what he
1: thought.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't, you know, and the, in a way, there's no going back. What you see the way it is. And so this is like coming back to the folk catastrophe, like, oh, this is what it means to be a human being, or this is what it means to be alive with a mind and body when it's like this. And the the thing is often, like I said, it isn't easy, and what really helps is to realize, it's kind of a spiritual exhaustion, but it's really a profound insight, how exhausting it is to be disconnected, to be unaware. It's realizing how exhausting it is to stay deluded, to stay obsessed about things that don't really matter. So when we're sitting, instead of dropping into the moment as it is, feeling the activity of the body, the activity of the emoting heart, the activity of the thinking mind, the sounds, the sights, everything moving, wild because nobody's in charge even of our own thoughts let alone everything else that's coming and going and the harley that drives down the street and the fragments of memory and unresolved emotions and everything else that's just playing out cause and fact and uh so but that's what we're trying to get to that place because there's no waking up without being connected. And and there's a lot of deflection. We intellectually think, Oh yeah, it makes a lot of sense for me to learn how to be real with my experience with the present moment. Nobody really would argue that. But we don't how many moments today were we actually in that space? We were mostly in our, you know, mental constructions about this and that. We briefly visit, (laughs) it's like, oh, no, I don't want to be here. (laughs) And we go (laughs) out into the next thing. So it's, you know, in in, um, the sort of psychology, Buddhist psychology, two really important ideas and, and sort of mental muscles are the capacity to connect with the present moment and the capacity to sustain, to have that continuity of present moment awareness. And we need both, they're kind of two related but distinct mental muscles or capacities or skills to know how to, oh, it's like this. Which means the mind isn't dependent on its mental interpretation. And, and there's sort of, a, a way to know because when we're really connected, it's wild. That's why it's so hard both to connect and to sustain awareness with the present moment because it isn't solid, the present moment. It's alive. That's why I like to use the word wild. There's not really a good word. When the monks and the nuns um, chant, The daily chant in early Buddhism in Theravada Buddhism, they chant to the refuges Buddha Dhamma Sangha, and it can just sound a lot, you know, like spiritual dogma. But it's really instructive, you know, that it's supposed to be practical and useful. Buddha, you know, respecting the capacity of the mind to be awake. But the interesting one is Dhamma, the second refuge usually translated as the way it is the truth of the way that it is but not it's not a conceptual truth and it's described the chant you know there's several words sandatiko which means apparent here and now it's here and now and it's in a way it's fully available here and now It's like when I... Just see, just watch your mind. Turn your attention to the present moment now. Because it's like... Where did your attention go when you heard the instruction, turn your attention to the present moment? Because where's the present moment? Yeah, this is... Our whole life right now, it's like we are, I am, the present moment. It's not like me going to look at the present moment. This experience, this activity of the body and the mind being known, is the present moment, the totality of this. So that's that first... So when they chant, this is a daily chant, and when you, like if you were to... Practice at a monastery. Some of us have spent a lot of time practicing at monasteries over the years, and uh, we join in, you know, with this chant and and we and it's really like and interestingly, uh, generally, I mean, there's sort of different cultural expressions, but generally, early Buddhism is in a very ornate spiritual religious tradition. The devotional object is the Dhamma. (laughs) And in the early years, it was just depicted as a circle, you know, and then the wheel, the eight spokes of the wheel, something, it was a really simple, you know, icon or religious symbol. Later, because of the competition with Greek culture, which had invaded, you know, much of that part of the world, they started doing statues because the Greeks were into statues. And so that sort of lives on now. Um, but they kept it really simple. And Dhamma, it was really this, it's here and now, and then the, the next word, akaliko, which means it's here and now, and it's timeless. And timeless is sort of, when we say timeless, it's a way of saying it's, uh, it's not in that duality of this and that. It isn't like uh, somehow dependent on a grid the mind gives it. So it's here and now, available here and now, wide open. There's a a famous line from uh, the the text, the discourses of the Buddha. where he said something like, wide open are the gates to the deathless. That's a synonym for awakening for freedom. Wide open, it's totally available, (laughs) right? For those who have eyes that can see, those who are actually interested, it's wide open. So whatever it is that sort of the awakened ones, the happy ones, the people who have resolved their existential anxiety, It's here and now, it's timeless. (laughs) pasiko. some of you might have heard that phrase because it's used a lot in the texts, come and see, but here you could probably translate it as encouraging investigation. There's something like when we do open to what's here and now and timeless, there's something in that opening that it's like there's something that draws the mind in that it naturally encourages investigation. The mind is naturally interested. Because a lot of the time when we're practicing, it's boring. But you know why it's boring? It isn't isn't that Dhamma, the way it is, the present moment is boring. But any idea we have about the present moment definitely is boring. (laughs) Or any idea we have about being a bad meditator... That's boring too. Or somebody being a better meditator than us. Or that I should have done something else instead of meditating. Or after all these years of meditating, I should be a better meditator. All of those ideas ultimately are very boring for the mind. Because we've thought those ideas hundreds of times, right? I mean, there's these basic loops that... uh, Uh, the mind uses. I've been reading, there's a series of lectures by Venerable Nyanananda, Sri Lankan monk. I don't know if he's still alive. One of the very respected elders in the last 50 years or so. And Venerable Analio, this German monk, transcribed these lectures that were given, I think, in the 1970s, 1980s to a group of practicing monks in one of the forest monasteries in Sri Lanka on Nibbana, on awakening. And um, let's see what was the point I was going to make here. <laughs> I lost it. Well, maybe we'll come back. So we have a parent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation. Ahi pasiko, and then the next thing when they're chanting, it's opanaiko, which means leading inwards. Toward liberation, right? There's a kind of a feedback loop. The more the heart opens to what's here now and timeless, that's naturally interesting, the more the mind stays awake. Remember, it's wild, so it's not like the mind can sort of grip the object. Okay, I got it. I got the present moment. It's like sand through the fingers. You can't So what keeps the mind, that I mentioned, it's not just connecting, but it's sustaining. So, because part of what the mind wants, the sort of, one of the most essentially bad habits of the mind, it just wants to be done working. Right? So it wants, like, get the answer, and then I can rest. I know the answer. But that's not, the way the present moment works. What allows the mind to sustain present moment awareness is an active discernment. Because whatever that moment of connecting and maybe being relatively clear and allowing, that's only for that moment. And then you got to do it with the next moment and the next moment. So there's something, there's nothing passive in being present. And a lot of meditation, uh, meditators, we can get in habits of passivity where we're basically hanging out in trance states and it's peaceful and it's relatively settled and we feel like, okay. And it is, it's like a good nap, you know. But we're not learning, we're not in the wildness of the present moment because to stay in the present moment takes that active interest, not thinking, We're not thinking about what's going on in the present moment. But it's like, because the present moment isn't a thing that the knowing mind can grip, and like, I got it, I got the present moment, don't let go, because it's like there's nothing in the hand ever, (laughs) right? So it's more like that being the space, the interested, the space that is interested, the knowing space that cares about the present moment, cares enough to be interested, cares enough to be receptive, moment by moment, and we're never done, because there's always the next moment, the next wild moment, to be aware, to be awake. And that's like, uh, sometimes people, like one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, describes the sort of awakening as as uh, recognizing the free fall and that's part of that continuity of awareness that there's nothing to grasp, there's no ground. There's still life is still the way it always was, but the mind is seeing or wisdom is seeing something about it that it hadn't clearly recognized before. It's always been true. It's not we never wake up to something that's new. We wake up to what the mind hasn't been seeing has been recognized because the mind is in its thoughts about things, in its delusion. So apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation, encouraging investigation, leading inwards, to be experienced by oneself. And nobody can do it for us. Each mind has to resolve its own problem which is, you know, distractedness, superficiality, attachment to its own, you know, its own kind of productions. Now I remember what I was going to say earlier. So, Venerable Yanananda, the Sri Lankan monk, he, he uses this, uh, these different similes to help the monks that he's teaching understand kind of the more subtle deeper teachings from the Buddha about awakening. And uh, one aspect of the mind usually gets translated as mental formations, mental constructions, involves intention. But he's translating it a lot in this series of lectures as preparations, mental preparations. And he likens it, and it goes all the way back to the time of the Buddha to use a simile of like... a Drama or a play, you know, uh, people putting on a play. And it's like these back then, of course, they did have theaters. They had sort of maybe wandering groups, you know, cart. And in that cart, they had a few things, like a few sticks and a few stools. And they would, in a few costumes or whatever, a couple of wigs, and they'd have to make do. Like, in one moment, the stick is you know a sword and the next moment it's a plow and then the next and it's a little like that with our mental productions you know it's it's like the mind is busy with whatever it has from you know past constructions whatever theatrical devices and props and costumes it has it's constantly making stuff up And we, the mind, takes the bait. It's sort of, we confuse ourselves. It's like, you know, we dress up as a pirate for Halloween and we look in the mirror and we're, oh my God, there's a pirate. You know, it's like, it's kind of that diluted all the time. It's like how many of us in the last few days, I forget how it's pronounced, is it Ama? What's the new uh, variant of the COVID? Amakha? Something like that. that. Amakha. You know, but, I mean, did you notice that our minds love to construct stories? Like, oh, it's probably nothing. Or, oh my God, (laughs) we're going to die. Or anything in between, you know. Close the borders. Don't close the borders. I mean, just, it's like we need to have a story and then to be temporarily spellbound by the story that either high-paid journalists construct or we construct ourselves. And then we do riffs off of it, because it's immediately, you know, it works for a while, it's spellbounds, but we need the next act, the next. And it keeps us, you know, lost in thought. So, because we're creating our own play, our own dramas, all the time, and when one gets bored When we get bored with one, it's just amazing how quickly we go to another, including the drama, I shouldn't be having so many dramas. Why am I thinking all the time? Why can't my mind just be quiet? And then we start thinking about that. And it's like, maybe I should microdose psilocybin. You know, I hear people are doing that. That that ought to cure me or I'll do this kind of retreat or I'll do this or I'll do that or... And, and it's endless. I'll finally get my act together, I'll cut out sugar for my diet, no more caffeine, maybe more caffeine. <laughs> I hear Mark drinks a lot of green tea. I'm gonna green tea. <laughs> Corey and I have both gotten hooked. to be experienced by oneself, no one can do it for us. And that's like in early Buddhism, there's a real um, emphasis on independence. And even though community really matters in being connected with wiser people, you know, we hear that phrase, uh, those who, who studied the tradition, one of the quotes that's often repeated is when Ananda said to the Buddha, you know, I think half of the spiritual life is about good friendship. And the Buddha almost reprimanded him. No, no, don't say that. It's all about good friendship. And we think it's just like all about hanging out with friends, but it's about hanging out with really wise friends. That's what the Buddha meant by that. People who know something about the heart and mind is what's important. And because the Buddha in another place said, you know if the people you're hanging around with don't know what they're doing, it's better to go off on your own. <laughs> because we'll just get sucked in to their delusions. That's how we are. We're, we're sort of, you know, we sympathetically vibrate with each other. So if we're around a lot of deluded people, it's really hard not to be, fall into the delusion. I mean, even in our country, it's sort of like we're, I mean, it's hard to know whether we could possibly be more diluted than we were in the past, because it seemed like, if we know anything about history, we were pretty diluted in the past. But it doesn't seem to get better, be getting better. You know, I think we can say that, or at least maybe it is. Who knows? I don't know actually. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but but the point is, the point I was trying to make is. Isn't it obvious to us how we get sucked into the sort of communal delusions, right? It's really hard not to get sucked in unless we're really careful about like what we let in. Is this helpful? Like when's the last time we were reading the news and we really, from this place of compassion and wisdom, do I need to read this? Will will I become a better person reading this? Is it useful in my life to read this? Because sometimes, of course, it is, I think. You know, we don't want to not know what's going on. But imagine if we had that kind of, not controlling, but really compassionate, wise filter going all the time. Is this enough, or do I need a little bit more of this? Okay, some entertainment might be good medicine. How much? We stumbled. My, my partner partner, Frickieson if you know, one of our that co-founder of Palm Ground, and one of our teachers here. I don't know how we stumbled upon it, but we stumbled upon this British ventriloquist. Let's see if I can bring her name up. She's just incredible. Current person. I think her last name might be Conti. C-O-N-T-I. Anybody know this person? She was so funny. I mean, she is just brilliant as a comedian and she, but she's doing the old school uh, ventriloquism I mean, it's really incredible but anyway, <laughs> if you get a chance but, but it was interesting because it was really good medicine Like the, we stumbled upon it we watched I don't know how much but it's like oh I want more you know, it's like more is there more online? can we get more of this? You know, and then it's not good medicine anymore when somebody kind of can make you laugh with relatively wholesome stuff, it's really, it can be good medicine. to Bring the mind, heart back into balance. But then, are we, re- okay, that's enough. That's good. Mind's in balance. I know it's there. I might need that medicine again. I'll even bookmark it, you know. But we just get kind of grabby. We don't want to... Stop. It's the same thing. We eat something really healthy, feels really good. But do we have that filter like my relationship with sensuality, my relationship with sense experience? I have to be independent. No one can do it for me. Only I know when, you know, and we don't know, even we don't know perfectly, but we have to take responsibility. Once enough, enough. What should I be paying attention to right now? What would be really good for me to be paying attention to right now? What would be good for my mind to be doing right now? And that's related to this last piece, to be experienced for oneself, individually by oneself, by the wise is the last, right? That the whole thing is about wisdom, discernment. And remember, initially all we might know is like what doesn't work but that's real wisdom like oh that wasn't helpful so there's by the wise means not that we're actually wise but that there's enough discernment ongoing discernment that is basically studying cause and effect oh i'm not going in the right direction anymore it was going in the right direction the heart was opening the mind was releasing its grip. The body was experiencing more settledness. And now it's different. The grip is bad. And that's that... Uh, being wise means that... That's one of my other teachers, Said Utejaniya, this Burmese teacher, a Buddhist monk. He That's how he defines wisdom. Wisdom, his phrase is something like, Wisdom knows causes. So, if you want to know what, like, is there wisdom on my mind? Well, is there something ongoing in your mind right now that is discerning cause and effect? Then there's wisdom present. Like, you might be here in the room, but you might be fantasizing about this or whatever. And... Wisdom is that related to mindfulness because mindfulness is what allows wisdom to be wise because mindfulness is aware of the present moment, aware that it's like this. And then when the mind is aware that it's like this, it can discern cause and effect. Okay, the mind is distracted and the result of that obsessive thinking, or whatever it might be, is energetically the mind and body's getting tight. That is the karmic lawful cause and effect. Okay. So wisdom saw the cause of, oh, it's like this, and made the, kind of connected the dots. Oh, when the mind gets excited about this, when the mind gets fearful about that, when the mind takes this personally, When the mind has this conceit, then the body mind gets tight, heart gets heavy. Okay, good to know. When the mind relates to the present moment like this, the grip releases. When the mind relates to the present moment like this, the grip returns. So that's really what wisdom is. And this is Dhamma, this is what we're devoted this is like we don't get on our knees for the Buddha when people bow down to the Buddha the statue you know or whatever especially in the East you know bowing is a big deal it's kind of cultural but we should that devotional energy isn't cultural that's universal like we need each of us in our lives we need that real love what do we really really care about what does the heart really care about? And maybe you do want to get down on your knees and put your head down, which is fine. And but whether we're going to use that form or not, the important thing is without that love, that kind of devoted, devotional love, and it's it's kind of hard, you know, that's why people prefer the statue of the Buddha then the circle, <laughs> you know, of Dhamma, the way it is, you know. That's what I'm devoted to. We'll get a little chain and little, you know, that I grew up Catholic, you know, and it's like a big deal when confirmation, you get your little, I forget what they call those things, but um, picture of Mary or Joseph or St. Francis or whatever it is, you know. But what we have is here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation, leading inwards, leading towards freedom, to be experienced for oneself, individually by oneself, by the wise. Right? And it It isn't easy for us to kind of keep in mind, but the thing is we can train the mind to be interested in this. But it means really changing our lifestyle because it's subtle. And when we're living a wild or, you know, I don't know what the right word is, but superficial life, it's hard to keep something subtle in mind. I mean, this is a perfect time for me because having ideal conditions for most of three weeks and I came back Friday night. Um, it's like relatively I mean relatively it's still hard, it's but it's relatively easy to keep what's subtle in mind. But then back in the push and pull of life and it's my partner's birthday kind of gathering yesterday, so had a to do for her a few other things and you know it's just like I'll get back to that (laughs) but it's the one thing that matters this is why you know monks and nuns and other people they chant this it's sort of a, a way to remember oh yeah this is what I care about it's here and now timeless and timeless too is sort of like can't be stained you can't break it you can't ruin it. You can't screw it up. Whatever it is, our refuge, it's always here waiting. Here and now, timeless. Naturally, the mind is naturally interested. courageous investigation. Leading inward toward freedom must be realized by oneself. No one can do it for us with wisdom, takes wisdom, that discernment of cause and effect. So I'll leave it here. We have 10 minutes. It would be nice, just uh, your own kind of reflections on the path and your own learning. and, And yeah, what is your own experience of the refuge that's here and now and the mistrust that you've experienced or noticed like even in the sit tonight perhaps, but at other times as well. And, and also the strengthening over time of the intuition that it is here and now. It is available. The gates are wide open when my mind is interested, isn't caught up in what's superficial, what ultimately is not that important. So any questions about what I've said or even questions that have been percolating about Buddhism and Jake has the mic and yeah, point it more horizontally, yeah, like that. Uh, He'll turn it up. Why don't you just go testing, testing. Testing, 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 testing. Testing, 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 testing. Great.
1: Question is about the second refuge of Dhamma. What if, in the present moment, the experience is a lot of suffering? How does how is that a refuge? Or how does one understand that as a refuge if the sense experience of suffering?
0: Yeah. Well, the refuge one is that. When we realize, yeah, because that's why I, I talked about the full catastrophe, it's basically having a more honest and relaxed relationship with the truth of suffering, right? And what that is, why that is already some relief, some release, is that I'm less compulsively running and I'm less compulsively trying to having to lie to myself which is just a lot of stressful work for the mind to be pretending that life is something that it isn't. It doesn't mean, you know, when the, in Buddhism when we talk about there is suffering it's not in any way denying the truth of joy and beauty and goodness. It just means that life experience, sense experience, doesn't satisfy. So there may be real joy, hopefully, I mean, it's not equally distributed. <laughs> I'm sure you've noticed in life. So hopefully you've experienced some real peace, some real joy, some success, some moments of feeling like you belong and are loved. and these things that humans find pretty satisfying. But it doesn't resolve the heart's uneasiness, does it? Anybody resolve all their uneasiness? (laughs) And even if somehow we just had it perfect, the fact that other people are really suffering spoils that good feeling that we, it can't be shared, it can't remove other people's suffering. And we driving or riding our bike and we see the squirrel that got hit by the car, you know, even something relatively simple like that. So just to appreciate that it may be really painful, but there's some intuition that it's in the right direction. That somehow there's some there's a pleasantness to not having to run, even when what we're connected with is really painful. Other thoughts. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, here. Thanks,
1: Jake. Uh, it's kind of weird. Um, my mind has been just like really overactive the last few weeks with some things at work. Um, and today, just meditating, I just I more or less fell asleep, and it was so great. I've never felt happy about like falling asleep in meditation before. Like I just haven't really had good sleep. Just, just always kind kind of going. Um, so, I don't know, I just thought it was just interesting, and also just even I think the way you started off, talking about like don't focus on that, you know, you like practicing. I think maybe that helped kind of set the stage for it. And then also, like, kind of, I'm not frustrated with the fact that I, I fell asleep, you know, I, I, was, I actually feel good about it. So, I just thought it was just weird.
0: Yeah, no, I'm glad you shared that because part of the the style or the approach that we took tonight in the guided meditation is the hands-off. Just let the mind and body do what it needs to do. And if you have had a really uh, busy, stressful time these last few weeks, if the mind really is missing that opportunity to hit bottom and fall asleep and go back to zero, why wouldn't it take this opportunity to do that? Right? We're not telling the mind what to do. So, yeah, it's good. And then, I mean, I'm, and I should be recording this because it, be, it can be misunderstood, but there is there's different ways to deal with sleepiness. But definitely one way to deal with sleepiness is just to let the mind go to sleep. Right in the form of meditation, you know so don't crawl back to bed just like, honey, if you're going to go to bed I mean, if you're going to go to sleep that's fine and then you wake up eventually you know but just to really let things play out as they'll play out same thing if the wildness of the mind the worrying, the planning, the whatever just maintain that interest, that non-controlling interest and it, you don't even need to name it, like, uh, oh, the mind is you know, hyperactive or the mind is obsessing. It's just like giving the mind a big space to do whatever it's going to do. And if it collapses into sleep, collapses into sleep. If it something else happens, then it happened. And it's kind of exploring like, you know what? I really don't want to be in control anymore. I don't want to be the parent in the room. You know, it's like the mind. I don't know much like about how to be happy or how to be wise, but I'm really ready to be done being the grown-up, having to be the parent. Now, I'm not saying that's always the right medicine or the right spiritual approach, but you should definitely play with that just like sometimes you do want to play with being the parent of the room. I'm not going to let you think about that anymore. Attention, you can't go there. So here you can, you can be aware of this, or you can be aware of that. This is like you would with a, a kid who wants to play with the electric, electrical socket. No, 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 you can't put. But you can play with the train, you can play with the doll, you can play with this, but you can't play with that. I'm going to stand here. I'm not going to let you put the bobby pin in the socket. You know? And basically, you can't say anything. I'm going to be the real parent now. As long as I see that you have this neurotic desire to put the bobby pin in the electric socket, I'm going to be vigilant. So sometimes we want to be the parent, but sometimes it's really good as a meditative technique like uh, one of my teachers uh, Tibetan teacher called it non-distracted non-meditation and in the middle of a quiet city he would yell sometimes not yell but in a loud voice say stop meditating because <laughs> he would just sense you know people are trying to meditate you know and it's screwing it up I mean for each each individual right because it's like I'm a somebody who's bad, who's going to meditate and become good. And that's not often good medicine for the mind. It's just more of the same. Yeah, thanks for sharing that with us. Good to hear. It's 8.30, but if people can take just two minutes, maybe we'll let both is it both? Yeah.
1: so lately practice has felt it's better maybe.
0: yeah it sounds pretty good
1: um practice has kind of felt like almost like a band-aid so you know i went on the weekend retreat with uh, you and shelly about a month ago or so and it's just kind of felt like i mean it was wonderful great you know uh, nice to Come back to awareness, but the practice has kind of felt like I'm just tidying myself over at home till the next retreat. So I have another retreat planned. I'm excited for it, but at least in the current moment and lately, it's just felt like I'm going, you know, to Common Ground or maybe a local Zen Center just to kind of tidy my meditation over until I get to the retreat. And it hasn't felt like, really deepening the practice. So I'm just curious as
0: to your thoughts. Yeah, I think one of the ways to, to deal with that bow is don't rush into a meditation technique. So when you have your 30 minutes at home or come to a place like Common Ground or wherever else you might find a practice with others, but to really almost sort of let the practice be reborn each time and take take responsibility so that you're not just on autopilot but you're really interested and you're connecting with that that devotional energy like i really i really care about this existential situation not philosophically but actually as a human being who knows that i don't know like i don't know how to be happy anybody know how to be happy I mean, and... Do you? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Quick, tell us! For second. you.
0: Yeah. But to kind of get to that place where we're very real with ourselves and we understand that this time is precious that I can learn something I haven't learned yet. Not by thinking through things, but by just being interested in the heart and mind in, in this sort of subjective experience. And then it makes it real, um, because that's what happens when we have more time on retreat, is there's the situation is secluded enough that we're kind of just stuck with ourselves. So that it just becomes obvious when we don't have a lot to do, how this whole catastrophe living It just becomes obvious. And you don't have to go on a Buddhist retreat. Just put everything down for a while, for half a day or three hours. Just sit there, and you'll see. (laughs) This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website,